Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another one of our weekly podcasts. My name is Richard. On behalf of Journey Community Church in Fontana, we thank you for tuning in. Once again, we're breaking away from our usual routine to bring you this week's podcast a little early. Last week was our Christmas service, and we hope you all enjoyed that. But this week, we're going to be jumping back into part three of our study, A Christian's Guide to Surviving a Dying Culture. Now, with all that out of the way, let's go ahead and dive into this week's message with Pastor Chris. His message had been the same from the beginning. Repent, for God's judgment is at hand. Before the kings, his message was repentance. Before the priests, his message was repentance. Before the prophets, his message was repentance. And before the people of God, Jeremiah's message was the same. Repent for judgment is coming. Imagine being a guy. Imagine being a person who your sole purpose in life is to tell people to get right with God. And so you go to the poor people, you go to the rich people, you go to the smart people, you go to the uneducated people, and you tell people to repent. And what do they do? They turn their backs. They call you crazy. They belittle you. They think you're nuts. They call you a liar. They put you in jail. They throw you in stocks. All these things happen because Jeremiah told the truth. But he was living in a culture. He was living in, an, in a society which was decaying, rotting, corroding away, and close to death. Jeremiah found himself in a land there around 600 B.C., with a people who had completely apostatized from God, from a culture who had completely rejected God, from a culture who had completely replaced God, from a culture who had completely reasoned God away. And there Jeremiah weeps as he sees the judgment of God come across a nation. The king is broken. The priests are broken. The prophets have been broken. The people have been killed. People have been raped, murdered, taken away. None of that had to happen if God's people repented. Fast forward 2020, these United States of America, we face the same problem Jeremiah had. As the church heralds repentance, we are mocked, ridiculed, called hypocrites, bigots. We are rejected. We are despised. Meanwhile, the culture is dying around us. The message, repent, for God's judgment is at hand. So we're continuing our series this morning on how to live in a dying world, primarily how Christians are to survive and thrive in a culture that has completely collapsed around us. And so it's an exciting time 
but it's also a challenging time. And so just to kind of cover some ground before we get into our text, you remember about three weeks ago, we looked at the symptoms and reasons in which a culture dies, primarily because God reveals himself to a people. Around the world, it's through the conscience, and around the world, it's through creation, so that every eye can see that God truly exists. They may not know God the Father, they may have never heard the name of Jesus, but they know a creator exists. And so they honor him by doing what is right in their own conscience and staying away from what is wrong in their own conscience. So God reveals himself to a people. In our great country, God has revealed himself in a way which is probably unlike any other in history outside of Israel, because we have a land that is completely and totally filled with the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can go to one state to another state, from rural lands to urban areas, and ask an American, have you heard of Jesus? Tell me what Jesus has done. Tell me who Jesus is. And probably, I would say, eight out of ten know the answers. God has revealed himself in an incredible way in the United States of America, And we, by and large, have rejected him. So God reveals, man rejects. Well, we were created to worship. So when you reject the one in whom you are to worship, you must reason and then you must replace. So human nature, society, here in Southern California and from sea to shining sea, we have rejected God. We have reasoned him away. Professing to be wise, we have become fools, the Bible says. Why? Because we have suppressed God's truth in unrighteousness. We've reasoned him away, and now we replace him with some other form of God. And that can be a false God. That can be an American idol in which we look up to. We are called fanatics as we religiously and zealously worship athletes and musicians, and whomever else, we have exchanged the truth of God for the lie, and we have worshiped and served creature rather than the creator who is blessed forevermore. So what does God do? God gives up on a nation. You don't want me. I don't want you. And he gives up. First, the judgment. God gives people over to the lusts of their own flesh. You don't want to honor me? Go ahead and pollute your own bodies. God gives them over to their own lusts. When there's no repentance then, the next form of judgment, extreme forms of lust, and the Bible talks about homosexuality. In a dying culture, homosexuality will be pervasive in every level. You look at Rome and when it fell, You look at at Greece and Troy and all these, these great little empires. They were called boy lovers. Homosexuality entered in because of God taking his hands off of culture. And you see the glory of Rome fall. You see the glory of Greece fall. You see the glory of these great empires fall. And when God gives a person or a people over to a depraved flesh, then he will give them over to the last step, a depraved mind. And there, when a mind has no fear of God, there will be no limit to the imagination in which sin 
can be conjured up and proliferated throughout a society. Welcome to the United States of America. Here we are. How then can we survive and thrive when everything, morally speaking, is collapsing around us? Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. And we're going to study one verse this morning. We could probably take a month on it. We'll only take about an hour. Matthew chapter 5. And we're going to take verse 13. Matthew chapter 5, starting at verse 13. And for you Bible students, what is this particular portion of Scripture known as? It's in the Gospels, a Gospel of Matthew, but the Beatitudes. Chapter 5 through chapter 7 is known as the Sermon on the Mount. And chapter 5 in particular is known as the Beatitudes. And what Jesus, when he's talking to his disciples, and he's talking about the Beatitudes, he's talking about a beautiful attitude. How the child of God internally shall live. And he starts off in the verse, first nine verses. You shall be peacekeepers. You shall be uh, meek. You shall be mild. You, you know, you shall mourn. You shall thirst for righteousness. All these beautiful attitudes within the Christian. And so here Jesus in Galilee is walking up this little hill and he's with a big crowd of people. And as we get into our text in verse 13, the crowd weans out and it's now he and his disciples over this beautiful setting in Galilee. And he's telling them, have this beautiful godly attitude internally. And what happens when you live after God in this world? Verse 10, 11, and 12 of Matthew 5 You'll be persecuted for it. You'll be persecuted because you are shining bright in a dark world. You are going to stick out like a sore thumb and people are going to hate that you're living the way you ought to live. And they're going to hate that you're telling them that they're living in a way you they ought not to live. And so you will be persecuted. And then we get to verse 13. You're godly living in an ungodly world, you are in the midst of persecution. What do you do? How do you live? Verse 13 answers that question. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Jesus starts off and he says, you are the salt. Now, salt in antiquity, salt in the in ancient times was incredibly valuable. Incredibly. So much so that the Roman soldiers would be paid in salt. Imagine going to war, the risk of dying, the being away from your family for months, possibly even years on end, and you're paid in salt. That's how valuable the commodity was back in the days. Now, it's not because of the taste. Salt was not valuable because of the taste. Salt wasn't valuable even because of the color. Some people say, well, salt is white, and white equates to purity, and Christians are supposed to be pure. That's not what Jesus is talking about. And Jesus is not talking about how 
your life should cause other people to sting and then heal them as you rub off in them like salt in a wound. That's not what Jesus is talking about either. What Jesus is talking about when he says you are the salt, he's talking about preservation. That's the number one thrust of this passage. See, when a Roman didn't work well, when a soldier wasn't doing his thing, his commander will say this saying, you aren't even worth your salt. You're not even worth your salt. That's how important it was. Because imagine, I've been watching this show on YouTube and on uh, Netflix called uh, Meat Eater. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but it's this hunter. He goes around and, you know, he has, he just goes out in the wilderness and he hunts big game all over the world. And like one thing I've learned from that is how hard it is to catch a wild animal and to kill it. I have no idea how our ancestors did it with spear and bow and, and rocks and all the rest. No idea. They are incredibly good at smelling you from long distances, hearing you, seeing you, and you can't take it down. It's very difficult. So a, a hunter or hunters, they may get a kill once a week if they're lucky, maybe even more, may even go longer once a month. So you kill, let's say, a big elk or deer, and you have hundreds of pounds of meat. You can't eat that in one sitting. So how do you feed your family over and over and over again over the course of a long period of time when there's no LG stainless steel refrigeration, there's no big freezer, right? We can't go to the grocery store or a deli and pick out what beautiful cuts of meat they want. So what they would do is they would take that meat and they would completely saturate it in salt. They would cure it in salt. And what salt does is it dehydrates the outer layer, keeping the inside fresh. And where, what salt does is it does not allow bacteria to grow. And so bacteria can't grow. Therefore, the flesh cannot become rotted. The flesh cannot decay. The flesh cannot ultimately, you know, go bad or foul. Jesus says, you are the salt. You are the preserving agent. Incredible. Arabs today, if you go to like the old school Middle East, and you talk to old school Arabs, they carry this idea of salt being a preserving agent even to this day. They'll take a piece of bread between uh, two uh, elders within a tribe or family, and they'll sprinkle salt and they'll break bread. And that's a symbol of moral obligation between the two families. That symbol of bread and salt is saying, if something were to happen to you, I am obligated to take care of yours. And if something were to happen to me, I am, you're obligated to take care of mine. And it's sprinkled with salt. This moral obligation is binding. In Leviticus chapter 23, the sacrifices were to be done in salt because they were to be preserved. And in second chronicles, there was a civil war going on there in Israel. The, the people were fighting against each other. And one of the kings stood up. And he spoke about how God had made a covenant with the house of David and sprinkled it with salt. In other words, God's promise to his people will always be preserved. So salt is a preserving agent. Now, look at what the text says. You are the salt of what? The earth. Put on your thinking hats for one second. Think about this, Maria. 
What is Jesus presupposing in that statement? If salt helps and fights decay, and you are called to be the salt of the earth, then what is Jesus' presumption about the earth? It's in decay. Jesus assumes you already know that to be true. The world, the culture, the society, it's in decay. Therefore, it needs a preserving agent. Jesus says, that's you. You are that dude. You're that person. The world is in decay because of sin. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 17, God has pronounced judgment on the serpent. God has pronounced judgment on the woman. And now God is pronouncing judgment on Adam. And then he says to Adam, Genesis 3, 17. Then to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife. Because you have listened to the voice of your wife. I mean, if there's ever a, vo- a verse you could hang up in a man cave, that would be it, right? And have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from. Listen to this. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat bread till you return to the ground. There are two things that are vital in verse 17 and 18. Number one, that human beings are in decay. After the age of 21, biologists say, says your cells start atrophying and start going into decay. So technically, if you're over the age of 21 years old, you're already, scientifically speaking, downhill. You're on the other side, which is pretty sad. We are in decay because God says you will return to the earth. You are going to die. The second thing that's in decay is the world. The world is collapsing even before our very feet. And Romans chapter 8 verse 20 says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Paul writes to the Romans and he says this, even creation itself is collapsing. Look at the animal kingdom. The animal kingdom is vicious because of the curse. We think of animals and we think of domesticated lassie and, you know, little furry, little kitten friends and all the rest. Go out to the wilderness and see, you know, how bears treat you and the wild or razorbacks treat you or poisonous plants treat you or parasites within water treat you. The world is in decay. And plants and animals and subspecies, they all do things, grow thorns, spit poison, have big teeth to protect themselves and to kill others. The animal kingdom in decay. Our habitat in decay. Then when you come in closer, even to America, you look at the financial systems. And even the financial systems in America are in decay. The reason why we have all-time stock market highs and all-time real estate highs is because of the printing press, the printing of trillions and trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars. 
We have to pay that back. That's not a grant. We have to pay that back. The United States 30 years ago was in a surplus, meaning we made more money than went out. Today, we are 130% debt to GDP. In 10 years, we're projected to be at 250% debt to GDP. So just to put this in layman's terms, imagine you owed on your credit card 130% of all your assets. How do you pay that back? Well, you go and you borrow more credit, and you go to a family member and you borrow more money so you can pay back your debt. What happens eventually when the credit cards stop coming and the family members stop giving? You go belly up. What happens to the United States when we lose the printing press through the world reserve currency? How do you pay back 23, 25, 40 trillion dollars in debt? You don't. So what happens to these great United States? Financially, we are in absolute decay as God takes his hand of blessing off of this great nation. And I love my country. And it, it, my heart bleeds. I weep over our country. The financial system is in collapse. The moral system is in collapse. Romans chapter 1, I'll just read it with very little explanation. See if this describes our culture. And just as they did not see it fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, and evil. The billionaires in 2020 have got exponentially richer. Everybody else has gotten poorer. Evil and greed will do that. They will take tragedy or make tragedy because of greed, wickedness, unrighteousness. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossipers, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, and although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but they also give heartily approval and encouragement to those who practice with them. That's cancel culture. If you're not on our side, you're dead. If you're on our side, we will champion you as some great hero, and they're a hero of sin. So Jesus tells you and I, we are the salt of the earth because the earth, our society, our country is in decay. And there's uh, decay within animals and species, within the planet itself, within the financial systems of the world, within the morality of the world, and even relationally, there's decay because God has let go of America. Here's the sad news. 65 million Americans are fathers, or at least procreated 
in making a child. According to Gallup, only one out of every three will stick around to raise their kid. That's called relational decay. When a father will not even stick around to raise his own child, which God has put in the heart of people innately to take care of their own, there's a major problem. Relationship has completely collapsed. The United States is the number one divorce country on planet Earth with a population greater than 30 million. Number one and two is Belarus and Maldives. And then number three in the entire world, the highest divorce rate is the United States of America. One out of every two will fail. You have a complete relational meltdown when you have a society that rejects God. Absolute, complete meltdown. And Jesus says, what in verse 13? What's or who is the answer? It's the first word. You. Think about this. There are four restraints of evil, and we talked about it, so we're not going to go in depth with it. Four institutions God has placed on earth to restrain evil. One, the moral compass, your own heart, your own mind, and the conscience that tells you right and wrong. In America, largely, that conscience has been seared. Morality is no more. You can do what you want, and nobody should tell you it's right or wrong. We have turned into what's called an autonomous nation. Auto, self, nomos is ruling. We are self-ruled by our own intuitions, gut feelings, and instincts of our flesh. When the conscience is seared, God has put a safety latch, and that's the family unit. Parents teaching their kids, kids obeying their parents, and there in that is a restraint of evil. If a father heard his child say a bad word, bang. And the child knows, okay, that is not allowed in this family unit. And so there's a restraint of evil. When you have a divorce rate of one out of every two, when you have one out of every three fathers in the home, when you redefine marriage and you have men with men and women with women, you have obliterated the family unit. When abortion has 57 million children that have been executed and terminated, and when you have feminism, which upends God's order on the family structure, you have a complete collapse of the family unit. Thus, you have a collapse of God's restraining evil on in this society. So we don't have the moral conscience. We don't have the family unit. The third thing God has done is establish the government. The government was established to protect its citizens and to restrain evil, to deter evil through the sword. God has given the government the right of capital punishment in order to deter evil. What happens when a spoiled culture spoils the government? You are left with an institution that was created to restrain evil, but now it proliferates evil. And so you're, you're ended up with scandal after scandal after scandal. For example, you have a governor who tells us we're not allowed to go to church. We can't meet. We can't be indoors. We have to wear masks. We must social distance. We can't break bread with each other. We can't meet on Thanksgiving. We can't meet at Christmas. But he's found with 22 people at the French Laundry. They run up a bill of over $700 a piece in alcohol. 
sharing food, sharing, sharing liquids, no social distancing, inside having a gay old time. When you have a corrupt society fill positions of governmental leadership, you no longer have God's institution running as it should. You now have corruption. So there's overreach of government. There's overreach of power. There's draconian measures. There's authoritative rule because the government was meant to protect and to keep civilization. But now they are proliferating the destruction of it. It's incredible how we are seeing the meltdown. When you have corrupt people in office, you have instances like what happened in Minneapolis, Minnesota, where the council voted in a unanimous decision to defund the police. A week later, they spent $67,000 on private security of taxpayer money because their citizens are not worthy enough to be protected, but their lives and their family are. You have stuff like Chicago's mayor, uh, Mayor Light, uh, Lightfoot. She said in June she was uh, lifting up those riots. She was uh, telling them how brave these people were, how these peaceful protests were, were a good thing. $20 million in damage later, she still did nothing until the protest came to her street. And then she called the peaceful protests an unlawful assembly, and she had the law enforcement disband them. When you have L.A. County, which is 25 miles away from us, have the DA pass legislation, pass rules that say if you drive without a license, you solicit a prostitute, you take that prostitute and you break into somewhere and trespass, and then the cops are called on you and you resist arrest. None of those offenses are punishable under law now. You cannot prosecute any of that. But if you're a hardworking person who owns a business, who has to feed their family and go work in L.A. County, you could be arrested and you can be tried and prosecuted because you've broken the law or broken the mandate. It's incredible. When government is corrupted in sin, it no longer functions in that manner. So if you don't have the moral conscience and you don't have the family unit and you don't have government doing what government's supposed to do, God left one last institution, you. It's the church. That's the last hope in America. And we talked in Jude, and what do we say in Jude? that by and large, they have crept in apostates unnoticed. So when you have a weakened church, then you have immorality everywhere. But Jesus says to his elect, to the real Christians, to the churches who really preach God's word and seek to live God's word, you are the salt of the earth. And that gives me great, great, great hope. Because change begins with you. As cheesy as that may sound, it's the truth. Change really does begin with you. You are the preserver in which God has called to have an effect on your country, on your county, and on your people. It's you who are called to do this.
What an incredible task. That's an incredible responsibility, is it not? I mean, God could have sent angels to do this task. God could have created something that we have never even thought of to preserve evil from a society. And God says, no, the responsibility is on you. In the Beatitudes, Jesus says, you get all these blessings. All these blessings come your way. Um, to you is the kingdom of heaven. To you, you shall be comforted. To you, you will inherit the kingdom. To you, you will thirst for righteousness. You will receive mercy. You will see God. You will be called sons of God. Well, then what do we do, Lord? We go through persecution and we live as salt on the earth. So when the Lord says you are salt of the earth, you are the preserving agent of the earth. What is he really speaking of? What act or actions must I take in order to be a preserver of a decaying world? What's the thrust of the Lord's message? Personal what? Holiness, responsibility. It all comes down to how you live your life, not here on Sunday morning when everybody's watching, where you say, praise the Lord, hallelujah, throw up a smile, but it's how you live your life with the door closed. It's how you live your life at home when no one's around. It's how you conduct business. It's how you teach your children and what you teach your children. It's how you spend every minute of your day. That is how you and I, if we are committed to a personal holiness, can change our world. Because this is how it works. If I'm committed to walking with God, and I'm praying to the Lord, and I'm seeking God's face, and I'm, I'm studying God's word, and I'm applying God's word to my life, what happens is his spirit, his grace, his power guards my conscience. It keeps my conscience pure. It keeps me on my toes so I know if I'm doing right conviction, if our wrong conviction, if I'm doing right glory, praise, I feel good. I'm, I'm honoring and bringing glory to God. So in my personal holiness, my conscience, that unit in which God has placed in me to restrain evil is intact. Now, when I, when there's a person whose conscience is intact, who's living a moral life, Guess what happens to that family? It begins to permeate because that person in that family is not going to tolerate the sinful ways of the world within the home. And so it begins with one person dedicated to holiness. Then it spreads to the family unit. Then it spreads to the workplace, to the neighborhood, to the gym we go to, to the church we attend, to the people we meet. And it continues to go outward and onward. Personal holiness is one of the greatest evangelical tools on planet Earth. It's incredible because God exposes everything that's done in the dark, whether good or evil, it's exposed. And so when good is exposed, God gets glory. Do you know a, a man by the name of Hudson Taylor? 
He was a, a great missionary. Uh, 1800s and early 1900s, he went to China, planted over 150 schools, sent over 800 missionaries. He lived 51 years of his life in China, ministering and preaching the gospel and spending a lot of his days translating the Bible into Chinese, into uh, Cantonese. And he, he did it. And his impact in, in mainland China even is felt to this very day. Well, when the communist, uh, uh, Chinese Communist Party really came into power, you know, if you don't know, they are atheistic at, at its core. Government is end-all, be-all. When the Chinese Communist par- Party came into power, they hired an author to go and write a biography of Hudson Taylor and to change it, to purposefully change the truth so that it can show a, a, a negative effect of Christianity upon the Chinese people and ultimately suppress it. So they hired this, this uh, author. He was so gung-ho about it. He took his pen and his pad and he went off and spent months and months and months and months going all over mainland China where Hudson Taylor had had such an impact. He talked to people who had known him. He, he discussed, he read, he researched. And then he went back to Beijing. And he went before the Communist Party of China, and he took his pen, and he turned it in. And he turned in blank notes, and he renounced atheism. And he said, right before the CCP, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. And this was his reason. It was not Hudson's accomplishments. It was his personal holiness that converted him. This man went and found out how Hudson Taylor had worn Chinese traditional garments, how he had lived like poor people, how he had given his life to God, how he was holy and exactly the same behind closed doors as in front of people. And this man was so taken aback. His heart was so grabbed by a man's devotion to God that he knew it had to be real. And he gave his life to God. Personal holiness goes everywhere. And without it, you have nothing. All you are is a person who will be exposed. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. It's you. And if you don't think Christianity has an impact on culture, look at everywhere in the world where Christianity is suppressed and look at the people's freedoms. In China, disinformation, social credit system. If you talk bad about the president, you're not allowed to buy, you're not allowed to sell, you're not allowed to travel, you can't hold the job, you can't ride a bus. North Korea, Christians are in concentration camps. The Middle East, some places women are just now this year having the ability to drive. Wherever Christianity is, there's freedom. Because the Bible says, where Christ is, there's freedom. For this reason, Christ has set you free. So you look at the West and you see all these incredible freedoms that we enjoy. It is because of the gospel. But when sin exploits freedom, you have corruption. And so Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth and you can do it. My question is, how is your impact? What impact are you having on your world? Some of you have been Christians for decades now. 
What have you done for God? What change have you brought in other people's lives? How much have you built God's kingdom? Listen to what Jesus says. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. The word tasteless that the Lord uses in the New Testament is the word foolishness. In other texts, Paul and others, they use the exact same Greek word tasteless for foolishness. And what Jesus is saying is this, who's the salt? You, right? If a Christian is not living in personal sanctification, they are considered as foolishness. They are a foolish person. Why? Because like salt, you have a job. And when you don't fulfill your job, what purpose are you for? A microwave, a microwave heats up food. A freezer freezes food. If the freezer doesn't freeze and the microwave doesn't heat, they don't serve the purpose in which they were created. If you as a Christian are not dedicated to honoring the Lord in season and out of season and in the dark and in the, at the light and in church and at home, Jesus asked the question, what use are you? You aren't living out the purpose in which God created you. So in Roman times, notice it says trampled underfoot of man. That's not talking about salvation. In Roman times, uh, a Roman soldier walking down a Roman road, he has a piece of meat in his rucksack. His stomach starts getting a little hungry. He pulls off the rust sack. He takes out that piece of meat, and he realizes that piece of meat has gone bad, has gone spoiled. And so he takes his salt, which he covered that meat with, and he just dumps it out in the road. There's a lot of salt around the Dead Sea that has uh, come with a lot of mixed impurities. And so those impurities causes that type of salt to stop the decaying process. And so Roman soldiers, when they had salt that didn't preserve, it was absolutely worthless. So they dumped it out on the road. And what do people do on the road? They walk. And so Jesus is given this vivid explanation that a Christian who is not dedicated to a personal holy life, in season, out of season, behind closed doors or in front of people, are just as worthless as salt that doesn't do any function. You just dump it out on the ground and just walk on. It doesn't serve a purpose. So Jesus says we are in a world that is decaying around us, and the solution is you and I dedicating our lives to the Lord fully and completely. And if we don't, then we serve no purpose. There's no real reason for you and I to call ourselves Christians to come to church, to possess a Bible, or any other reason. We are called to bring glory to God through a personal relationship in Jesus Christ. So I want to close with this. How then can we be holy? Oh, one other thing. Salt also is corporate. When I tell you at the, across the dinner table, hey, Mike, would you pass the salt? 
you're not going to open up the little salt shaker, right, and pull out one little granular of salt and be like, there you go. Well, you might because you're that kind of guy. You're that kind of dude, but everybody else wouldn't, right? He just passes a corporate amount of salt, right? When you, when you completely salt a piece of meat, you don't put one drop of salt. You cover it completely. Jesus is saying this is personal and corporate holiness. The church is about being personally a diligent and honoring God at home. And then when we come together as salt, we can be used to uh, help a decaying culture and a decaying nation. So how then can we become holy? The acronym SALT, and we'll do this quickly and we'll close. SALT. S, surrender. That sounds easy. But there's a lot of Christians who surrendered when they prayed the Lord's Prayer and have never turned back since. Surrender to God. What is surrender? It means have humility and a new priority. Surrendering to the Lord is a spirit of humility. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the humble, Jesus says. It's about serving others, not being served. It's about giving and not wanting to receive. It's about never, ever, ever looking down at somebody else. Doesn't matter how much sin they're in. Doesn't matter how poor they are. Doesn't matter how bad they may look or who they are. To never look down on someone else, but to always see them as equals. That's a humble spirit. When people ridicule and mock and, and try to hurt you and get even, a, a humble spirit is one who just gives it wholly and totally to God without any kind of retribution on their own end. Surrender to God in humility and in a new priority. You know what surrendering to God on a daily level looks like? God, I really want to sin. I really want to sin right now. I really want to sin in this thing. I really want to go there and meet that person. I, I really want, my flesh is desiring this stuff. A surrendering, humble spirit is saying no to yourself and yes to the Lord. That's true surrender, and it's on a day-to-day, decision-by-decision moment. The A in salt, and I know this is going to blow a lot of you, it's going to blow minds right here is apply yourself. If you want to be good or you want to be great at anything, you have to work so hard. If you want to be a great musician, you want to be an incredible athlete, if you want to be a fantastic husband, if you want to be great at business, you got to work your real, your tail off. God called us to be great Christians. And yet the church has this concept that we don't need to do anything. Apply yourself. Read your Bible. Apply what you read in your Bible. Pray and commune with your God. Serve the church and serve people outside the church. Meet people's needs. These are all things that take a lot of effort and a lot of time, and Christians aren't bothered with it because we have businesses and we have jobs and we have laundry to do and all the rest. We have no excuse when we stand before God in judgment. Zero. Christians, you have to apply yourselves or just check out and go live your life and reap 
your consequences at a later date. But don't play the game of in and out, in and out. Apply yourself on a daily basis. Submit, apply yourself. The L in salt is love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Couple key components of love. Love does no harm. And think about that. Love does no harm. So if you see a family member, a church member, a co-worker, or anybody else living a life that is harmful, that's going to cause destruction to them, to the people around them, and ultimately to their own soul, it's unloving not to say anything. Just like if a person had cancer and they went to a doctor and the doctor felt bad for them. So the doctor says, you're, you're dandy. Everything's 100%. That doctor would be so unloving. As Christians, we love by calling people out. And as Christians, we have the right to call people out because our lives are on point. If our lives are, on, are not on point, we have no right to call anyone out. And so when you have a dying culture collapsing around us and the church doesn't say anything because the church itself has been corrupted, there are no restraints of evil in America. None. We've lost our saltiness. So we are called to submit to the Lord, apply ourselves to the things of God, to love God and to love people. And lastly, the tea and salt, train others to do the same. Jesus went around giving the great commission. And what does he say? Go into all the world and what? Make disciples. And then baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and what? Teaching them to obey all things. That's the Great Commission. So if we want to be people, if we want to be the salt of the earth, we have to train others to submit to the Lord, to apply God's uh, spiritual, um, to uh, there you go, to apply uh, spiritual principles to our lives, to love God, to love people, and then to train others. And that's how Jesus says, or that's what Jesus is referring to when he says, you are the salt of the earth. Amen? Applicable? All right, let's pray. Father, we just thank you for this time. Um, God, we are just so inundated with sin. Every time I look, I, I read some other stupid thing that some other uh, person who has no clue about what they're doing is doing. And uh, God, I just, I'm perplexed with the amount of immorality in, the, in our nation. I'm, I'm perplexed with the amount of uh, sense that isn't common in our nation. And God, it, it starts with revival. It starts with Christians. In the 17th century in England and in the 18th century in France, it was the church that stopped two nations from civil war. And God, we're asking you here in these wonderful states, in these United States, 
that your grace would shine from sea to shining sea, that your gospel will be lived from New York to California, that people would honor you, bless you, preserve your name, lift you up, honor you. We'd put you back in the courtroom, back in the classroom, back in the home. God, that you would make men to act like men, to preach God's word, to live righteously, to raise their family as you have called them to. God, I pray for our government as they have just gone astray. And I pray for our morality in our nation, oh God. But most of all, I pray for us. By your grace, we can have impact. By your grace, we can make change. And even by your grace, Journey Community Church could have impact around the world. I, I'm a believer, Lord, that you can do all things according to your will. And God, we're not asking for much. You are a God of a thousand cattle on a thousand hill, and Lord, we're just asking for the, the, the grass to feed on. And we're asking, God, that you would use us to the uttermost parts of the world and that we would change our world by changing our practices. Help us to be holy people and help us, God, to be the salt of the earth. In Jesus' name, amen. That is the end of all of our podcasts for this year. I would like to take a few moments to say thank you to our hardworking pastors and our tech team here at Journey Community Church in Fontana. Without them, our YouTube channel and podcast would not be where it is today. So I believe I speak for everyone at home when I say thank you for all of your diligent work. 2020 turned out to be a much different year than we were all expecting, but that never stopped us from trying to make sure that the word of God went out to all of you at home. We, the staff, are eager to continue our work through this next year, to continue bringing you sermons right to your home and on the go. We pray that as we forge ahead through these trying times, that these podcasts keep getting better for the glory of our God and your listening pleasure. So once again, on behalf of Jury Community Church in Fontana, we thank you for tuning in. Have a safe and a happy new year, and we will see you all next year. Bye-bye.